Today's episode of Your Stories is brought to you by Jackbox Games. Get five hilarious party games in the Jackbox Party Pack from the creators of You Don't Know Jack. Now on Xbox One, PS3, PS4, Steam, and more. Go to jackboxgames.com for more info. Thanks, Jackbox. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi, everybody. My name is Eric Garneau, and this is the first of two special year-end episodes of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories. You might have noticed this episode is called Producer's Picks. Well, that's because I'm one of the producers of this show, and these are some stories and songs from the past year that I wanted to highlight. Uh, I probably spend more time than anybody else thinking about this show, uh, so I thought it would be cool to dedicate one of our two best of episodes to stuff that really stayed with me for the past 12 months or so. Uh, a lot of the pieces in here were other people's favorites, too, but I felt like I had something cool to say about them, so I claimed them for myself. Uh, so next week, we'll get to all of your picks with our second best of. Uh, so before we get to the stories, of course, we have to start with a song... Uh, this first song you're going to hear comes from our Discovery episode, and it's me, Dwight, and Claire performing Rihanna's Umbrella. Uh, honestly, I was really bummed that nobody else but me nominated this song for the year-end episodes because I think this is a pretty good performance. Uh, I'm a sucker for any time the three of us can do uh, three-part harmonies. And um, this was a song the three of us had talked about doing since Claire started performing with us years ago, and it took a long time for us to not only find the theme to do it in, but to uh, find an arrangement that we like. Uh, I think slowing it down to ballad really brings out Claire's vocals, and all in all, I am really proud of this performance, so that's what's going to start us off today. I hope you guys enjoy. You have my heart, and will never be worlds apart, maybe in magazines, but you'll still be my star, cause baby, in the dark, you can't see shiny cars. That's when you need me there With you I'll always share Because when the sun shines we'll shine together Told you I'll be here forever Said I'll always be a friend Took a note, I'ma stick it out till the end Now that it's raining more than ever Know that we'll still have each other We can stand under my umbrella can stand under my umbrella, Ella, Ella, eh, 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 these fancy things. Never come in between. Till the end Now that it's raining more than ever Know that 
together. You can stand under my umbrella. You can stand under my umbrella. Ella, Ella, eh, 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 under my umbrella. Ella, Ella, eh, 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 under my umbrella. Ella, Ella, eh, 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 under my umbrella. Ella, Ella, eh, eh, eh. You can run into my arms. It's okay. Don't be alarmed. Come here to me. Our first story tonight is one of two from our LA episode that we recorded at Dinosaur Coffee back in February. Uh, this was a crazy and amazing night, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, honestly, I feel like it was one of two tent poles of my year, personally. Uh, we'll get to the other tent pole at the end of the episode, but uh, for now, let's talk about LA. So there was an incredible collection of uh, talented people crammed into this Silver Lake coffee shop that night, and the first story you're going to hear from it comes from Miss Nikki Pierce. Uh, this might be, honestly, the funniest piece from the show this year, if not of all time. Uh, Nikki's delivery and matter-of-factness is incredible, and I love that she launched into this story in a room full of people who I'm guessing she didn't know, at least not all of us, uh, and then she let us put it out on the internet. That is amazing. It's so funny, so bold, so well told. Uh, it just had to be in our year-end wrap-up, and I wanted to put it at the top of my episode. So here is Nikki Pierce. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. Um, uh, yeah. So, hello. Um, there, we're going to hit it right now, all right? <laughs> um, there are several completely terrible things women tell you will definitely happen to you once you pe- become pregnant. Um, they tell you after you've already become pregnant. See, no one tells you these completely terrible things that will definitely happen to you before you're pregnant because the truth would be its own form of birth control. (laughs) One of these completely terrible things that will definitely happen to you is that while giving birth, you will shit yourself on the delivery table. (laughs) Legs spread wide in front of a man you've known for a year or, like me, about eight months because I didn't do what good moms do and interview OB doctors. I was assigned to one, like in court. (laughs) Not only is this old stranger sitting mere inches away from your special flower, which is completely unkempt because you can't see down there, much less drag a razor across it. No, your mother and the man that helped put you in this situation are there as well. And if you're a pushover, then his mother also has front row tickets. Because when you quietly voice that you weren't comfortable with your own mother seeing your birthing vagina, much less her, you were an unreasonable bitch. (laughs) This unreasonable bitch was in labor for 49 hours. I went in at 5.30 a.m. on a Tuesday and delivered a very beautiful, healthy baby girl at 6.44 a.m. on motherfucking Thursday. (laughs) I had just ice chips, Pitocin, and whatever good drugs they use in epidurals in my system. 
I did not shit myself that day. I was better than the prophecy set before me. (laughs) The wrath that followed my luck was a shitstorm. An honest-to-God, truest sense of the word shitstorm. Since that day, 13 years ago, I have shit my pants at least 27 times. (laughs) If you're thinking... Uh, 27 times isn't that much over a 13-year period. Shut the fuck up, it is. (laughs) Averaged out, it is just over two times per year, but it's not the quantity that matters. It's the raw shame and embarrassment you feel knowing it's happening yet again. (laughs) It's almost like the birthing gods looked down, saw what didn't happen, something that apparently happens to every other woman in history who has delivered a baby, and decided, no. Hell no. Everyone grabs shit-inducing wands. It's time to strike vengeance down. And vengeance they did strike. I have shit my pants in an elevator while touring with a crush. Twice before shows, on a first date, on a third date. In my bed, en route to a bathroom at a concert, at an outdoor gathering with my family, in my pants and then into a kitchen sink because my brother wouldn't get out of the bathroom. In my pants and then into an emptied out shoebox because my landlord was replacing my toilet. (laughs) These are all true. While drunk at a party, while drunk at a bar, while drunkenly puking at a boy's apartment, hunched over the toilet, fighting back tears from my eyes that seem to be pleading, God, make one end stop. Just long enough that I can switch positions and puke into the CVS bag that he's utilizing as a trash can liner. Underwear no longer protected my delicate and precious female parts. It became a fabric that provided a necessary barrier between me and my jeans, or God forbid, a skirt at work twice. (laughs) What is wrong with me? Do I have a rare disease? Bad luck? Some form of subconscious problem where I don't believe I deserve to shit in an actual toilet in a timely, proper fashion. I'm not afraid to go in public restrooms. I don't wait until the last minute. I don't eat laxatives. I don't have Crohn's, IBS, a prolapse rectum, anal fissures, fistulas, or abscesses. Dear God, what is wrong with me? For all any of us know, myself included, I'm shitting my pants right now. This teeny tiny problem inside my otherwise completely perfect and picturesque lifestyle isn't something I haven't tried to fix. I've taken measures to eat more complex carbohydrates, which take longer to break down and thus give you longer to find a restroom. I've cut out gluten and most processed foods from my diet, knowing that it only takes a bite or two before the depths of my tummy is grinding over and over against itself, then finally finally turns to fire within its depths, like Smaug and the Hobbit. He and I are the same. I can't and won't have a few sips of beer, so if you're judging the woman that is gnawing on chicken wings and washing them down with a Malbec, maybe you're both assholes. It's not just her. If I could go back to that day, I would. I wouldn't take my my child, obviously. I wouldn't take back the 49 hours. I wouldn't even take back my mother-in-law. But if you find yourself on a baby table, terrified of the one thing so many women have warned you about, I hope you'll remember today and be reminded with the power of a thousand birthing gods of the completely terrible thing that will definitely happen to you if you do not. (laughs) Our second story comes from a Your Stories vet who always finds his way onto these year-end things. That, of course, is Chris Crotwell. Uh, this story comes from another favorite episode of mine for the year, our tribute to Dwight for his 30th birthday. Uh, Dwight is such a huge part of the show. As I contend in that episode, really, he's the most consistent voice of your stories. Uh, Chris delivers a hilarious and heartfelt tribute to him here. I thought it was important to put in a piece about how much Dwight means to all of us, and this is the one I went with. Some important background info in case you guys don't know. Uh, for years, Dwight would take pictures of every person on the Your Story stage and upload them to Facebook the next day. Uh, but he was just taking them with... Kind of a not great camera phone. So that is the background info you need to enjoy, Mr. Chris Crotwell. When I moved here uh, to live with Geiger, you know, when I was finally, after a quarter century, birthed from the sweaty hips of Alabama into this freezing hell, (laughs) where I was was destined to become an adult somehow, 
after much struggle, I didn't know anybody, and everybody I met because of Geiger or Patrick were comedians, which was great, but exhausting. Um, <laughs> it's just a really, it'll really wear you out. And uh, when I when I finally came uh, to your stories, I found a place that really made sense, but I wasn't comfortable. And I'm still not really. Uh, I love them. They mean a lot to me. All the people that go mean a lot to me, but I'm not that comfortable. The thing that makes me comfortable every time is that moment when I see Dwight. Because he has this amazing ability to make people feel comfortable. You know? He's like a Snuggie full of Xanax. (laughs) Really, really calms me down uh, and makes me feel welcome and happy to be there and has said some of the nicest things uh, anyone has ever said to me. And, like, when you see him on stage, it's that enthusiasm. Like, that goofy goofy enthusiasm or like the glee he has in making like a some bizarre aborted log of meat <laughs> um, and it's just yeah just he brings that he like he brings that to all the things that he does and you really feel that when you're around him i have considered and had many conversations with people over the last year and a half about starting to play magic And the thing I always bring up, and that a lot of people echo, is like, yeah, man, you know what? If we played Magic, it would be a really good excuse to see Dwight more often. (laughs) He's the sort of person I don't see enough, but that I always want to see. But one thing, uh, one thing sums up Dwight hugely in my head. Uh, And it's that no matter how old I get, and uh, no matter... How many amazing pictures people actually take of your stories? Your stories will always be blurry to me. <laughs> your stories will always be blurry to me because, because the, the enthusiasm it takes every month to take 15 awful pictures and always and always put them on Facebook. But this, see, this is my my theory. My my theory is that my theory is that it's not it's not pictures inexpertly taken with a bad phone that give that result. There is an aura of acceptance and love for every single person on stage around White that is so dense. That it actually bends light. <laughs> That's what he sees when he sees us. Because there's so many kick-ass vibes so close to where he is that everything, I imagine, comes across as fuzzy. And, you know, I some of the best pictures ever taken of me all look like they were taken through a foggy window. <laughs> And I, I really appreciate that, Dwight. I love you, buddy. Thanks. Like our opening song, this third story comes to us from our Discovery episode, an evening put together by Tanner Woodford of the Chicago Design Museum, an incredible friend and supporter. Uh, one of the gentlemen Tanner invited to speak was Mr. Mike Josie, partner and community director at Designation. Uh, Mike told an incredibly vivid, thoughtful story about a series of dreams he used to have involving shopping malls. Uh, this struck a chord with me. As the story gets at, I guess malls are kind of this uh, universal symbol. And uh, after about a week after I heard this story, I happened to visit my hometown for the first time in years and dropped in on my childhood mall, and I found it totally different and kind of deserted, which is a weird, striking thing. Uh, and I think Mike's, Mike's dreams were in my mind that trip. Uh, there's really some great insight here into both personal and sociological forces, and I just really loved it. So here is Mr. Mike Josie. You're standing in the center of a shopping mall. You look over to your right, and there's a food court. You glance up, there's an escalator over there, and wings of the mall going out there and and over there. There's a hum in the background of people, uh, chatting and eating and walking, shuffling bags against their pant legs, losing the grip of their children's hands. Music plays off in the distance, the cool of air conditioning present but never overwhelming. It feels anonymous but reassuring. And then, like a coin-operated viewing scope that's gone off, you're out of there. That was my first mall dream. Uh, it, uh, it, it came back often, in fact, dozens of times. Um, 
at first they were wonderfully boring, and I'd never had boring dreams before. Um, I always had the weird ones that obeyed that foreign logic of your subconscious running wild. Um, but the mall dreams somehow reflected the inanity of reality. There were low stakes. There were low goals. There was no craziness. Uh, it was just walking, satisfying the only curiosity of wanting to see where I could go. So the next dream arrived a few nights later, and I began my exploration. Every night felt like a tiny milestone. I found a skating rink near the food court. I found another atrium. I sat by the indoor fountains. I passed an orange Julius. <laughs> I saw the entrances to the department stores. I found the movie theater with its dark carpeted hallways and low ceilings. I went to the back hallway behind the mall where the offices and security offices are. One night it came to the end of the mall. You guys know what I'm talking about by that? It's that like badly lit corner where the mall walkers turn around. <laughs> um, when I did encounter windows in this mall, it was always daylight out and light was streaming in and there were relatively few people around. Occasionally it was completely silent. Other times there was the sound of activity in the distance. I never interacted with anybody, which you'd think going there night after night, month after month, I'd made friends with security guards or something. Eventually, I took the hallways and escalators and the department stores uh, to the department stores at the outer edges of the mall. There was wood paneling in the men's store. There's bright off-white tiles on the floor. Checkout registers scattered throughout. And I went outside. And outside, there was parking lots with diagonal spaces and yellow lines. Again, everything ordinary. But after a while, I realized something after night after night after these dreams. I had stopped being able to go back into the mall. I somehow got stuck in the department stores and their parking lots, and I felt like a loss with this development. Like, this was my mall. I had the map in my mind. It could have told you how to get to the atrium from anywhere. Um, and I didn't understand why I wasn't allowed to go back inside. So night after night, I'd go back to these parking lots, but never back inside the mall. I knew it was there, but it was closed off to me somehow. So I went outward. And you know how there's uh, shops at the other end of the parking lot from the mall um, uh, where the parking lots bleed into another, each other. Uh, I walked through these instead. I found a record store and a jewelry store and a uh, bookstore and a tire store. By this time, the sun was always about to set in these dreams, uh, just behind the buildings, actually. And the parking lots were very empty. Eventually, the mall was one more thing in the background, like those trees clustered together in parking lot islands. And I went out further. You know, when you're approaching a mall, there's always that higher density of shops and restaurants. That's where the Chili's is and the Burns and Noble and the Target. That's how you know the mall is nearby. <laughs> so suddenly I was on the roads to the mall, uh, which was a place I would get to eventually like a nagging thought. I was perpetually on the first half of an errands run that never quite got completed. In these dreams, it was nighttime now, and I remember being aware uh, that the mall was going to close before I could get there. And then, years after these dreams started, uh, I was only a passerby. In those dreams, I was in a car driving past the mall. It was on a hilltop up there overlooking the freeway, but I couldn't exit off that freeway. I approached it from another direction, and there it was off in the distance, um, but I didn't know the route to take to get there. I was lost in this city, driving for dozens of blocks looking for the right street. I couldn't navigate this thing that I had built. It, I couldn't return to its origin. It had grown wildly like a vine on a wall, out of my control. And then, after more you know, months and months of these dreams, I realized they had stopped completely. I was traveling a lot for work then, and all my dreams were stress dreams about going to the airport and forgetting my passport or getting to the hotel and looking for my room or going to the convention center and, and try, searching for my name badge. The only thing unifying those dreams was a sense of unease and uncertainty. I was no longer at a place that felt familiar that I had spent years exploring. The dreams reflected the opposite, actually. I was a citizen of nowhere, far from home, unable to figure out where I was heading. On some level, my mall was every one I'd been to growing up, patched together elegantly with no seams showing. On every road trip my family took in every city, we always went to the mall, in Richmond and Pittsburgh, Austin, Baltimore, Charleston, there was an underground one in Montreal. They were the, it was the malls that I went to with friends to just bum around on the cheap. Uh, their names were all taken from the same small pool of nouns. South Park, Town Center, Regency Square, Cloverleaf. They all had dark carpeted movie theater hallways. They all had orange julii. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually a word, but fuck it. <laughs> Maybe it represented the very concept of the mall. Uh, it was the photos I, I saw all the time of the overgrown dead malls that had been long closed down and water was seeping inside. 
It was the faded postcards of the malls in Southern California of the 60s and 70s, the time capsules of fashion of suburban malls in the 80s. There was the malls I found in the downtowns of cities like San Francisco or Block 37. They grow upwards, not outwards. Or maybe it represented growing up itself. I was 21 or 22 when the mall dream started, and they lasted most of my 20s. I had had multiple jobs, lived in multiple cities, bought a house, become overworked and under-vacationed. What started as calm curiosity turned into anxiety and fear until it was replaced by dreams far more stressful. Now, those are the dreams I was curious about now. Could it be they may be represented trying to return to the mall somehow? I read once that the translation of the word wanderlust means uh, a desire to return to a place you've never been. Some nights when it all comes flooding back to me, I ask myself, does it still exist somewhere? Why did I create it? I try to find answers, but you guys know the subconscious is no place for answers. The mall is somewhere out there, just out of sight, always around the next corner. Maybe it's a plane ride away. I remain proud of it, this universe whose big bang I witnessed. I gave it back to that fog that all dreams emerge from. And some nights I ask for the chance to return just one more time. I want to see how that Orange Julius is doing. Thank you. Here's the second story from our L.A. recording featuring Mr. Gary Lucy. Gary's voice may be familiar to folks who've checked out The Ketchup, a podcast that Interlogs now hosts on their site. Uh, Gary's someone I've been a fan of for a long time, and it was such a thrill to be able to have him do our silly show in L.A., uh, and then to work with him on his own project later in the year. I think this story, which combines intelligent analysis with incredible wit, is a great encapsulation of why I'm a fan of Gary, and I'm so grateful to the Nerdalogs, uh, not only for this storytelling platform where we met, but the ability to continue doing cool stuff with this dude. So here is Gary Lucy. I was so excited that uh, the uh, the theme was the grind, because it, it dials right into two things that uh, I love to think about. Um, impermanence, the, uh, the temporary nature of all things, and also the mystery of what happened to all the organ grinders. <laughs> They're gone. For generations, uh, organ grinding, it was a mainstay of, um, you know, inter- independent entertainment culture that, of which you guys are all fans of, because, because you're like at this show, and then it, it disappeared. And, um, Hem- Hemingway has a great, uh, phrase for this about how things, like, go away, like, grad, it happened gradually and then suddenly. Like, by the time you realized it was happening, it was too late to do anything about it. And that's, that's kind of what happened to the organ grinders, but, uh, <laughs> let me back up. Okay, so it, if, if you don't know, an organ grinder, this was, um, it, uh, it ran from about late 19th, century all the way up to like the 60s and uh if you were an italian american gentleman uh don't want to stereotype but it was italians mostly and uh you didn't want to go into the uh, family plumbing business with your brother (laughs) i want to be in the show business but i got no talent (laughs) back then there was no podcasting to get into so At that time, the show business job with the lowest bar of entry was organ grinding. And if you don't know what it, you would you would buy this box. It was a uh, a music box, and you would uh, it had like a it was a monopod or that a long stick. You'd go down to the corner, you'd bring your box down to the corner, and you would grind. <laughs> no, you would you would grind. It was like a you know ding da ding da ding da ding da ding da ding da ding. That's not the whole show though. The exciting part about an organ grinder is his little helper was always a monkey. <laughs> He'd have a little monkey like on a leash, like tied to the uh, to the organ, and uh, often wearing a little brocaded vest <laughs> to match his uh, impresario. And uh, he'd have a little cup, and you tip him. So uh, for seventy years, every major city there was you. They had organ grinders, and now they're gone. Which means, as a society, at some point. We got tired of monkeys? What? (laughs) How did that happen? This has been a great show, and there's a little bit more left of it, but there ain't going to be no monkeys on this show. What if there was? You would say, how was that show? It was fantastic. There was a little monkey. He shook my hand. It was great. So if, if, if if it's scientifically impossible to get tired of monkeys, what happened to all the organ grinders? Well, was it an economic thing? Did they get, like, priced out of the business? 
Americans have always had plenty of discretionary income for street performers in good times and bad. And in fact, in bad times, it's even more. Like it, today, you go down a Third Street promenade, there's like those uh, like 11 member dance troops. They do one routine. They get like a big Home Depot bucket full of 20s. You know, you've seen that. You were in one. <laughs> so it wasn't, it wasn't the economics of it. And besides, organ grinding, it's not about the money. It's about the music. <laughs> it's about the monkeys, but it's about the music too, kind of. Uh, was it, uh, was it a legal thing? Was it a cultural shift? Did we like, was there new laws that came out where we thought, ah, oh, maybe this isn't, uh, maybe, you know, the most dignified way that we can treat Italian Americans. Maybe they should, or monkeys. Uh, you know, maybe they should uh, do something else. <laughs> Giuseppe, you gotta take it easy with the organ grinding. We're trying to elevate the race and, you know, we've got the Godfather thing here. Maybe, like, I, I think I could get you a modeling job for a, uh, there's a new pizza place. They need a model for their menus. Can you make an okay sign? Good. Okay. That's it. You're hired. <laughs> so it wasn't that. Uh, and, and then I think, well, what, like it kind of wound down in the mid sixties. What was happening in America in the mid sixties? Well, the Beatles showed up. So I can imagine there's a group of teenagers, you know, they're on the corner enjoying the dun 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 Car drives by, she loves you, yeah, yeah. What's that? And they all, like that. Gradually, then suddenly, it happened. Boring grinding was done. But, uh, no, so it wasn't the Beatles, but then I remembered what else was happening in the mid-60s in America. And it was, uh, our escalation of involvement in the Vietnam War. And, uh, you probably saw the documentary about the, uh, Tunnel monkeys of Coochie who would go through. A lot of them were drafted. And that's where a lot of our, our monkeys went to uh, Vietnam. And uh, they never made it home. Up here. Up here they may have never made it home. They were back, but... Why you no dance anymore? But, uh, it just happens. That's all that happens. Things change. You know, they, you know, our tastes change and, uh, show business can be a show business with monkeys can be a grind. All show business can be a grind. Being the host of the grind can be a grind. Do you guys remember that? Are you old enough for that? Probably not. Just barely, a little bit. All right. That was our, uh, that was the, um, after school dance program in the, in the early nineties, uh, on MTV hosted by, uh, Eric Nees, one of the original uh, real worlders, and uh, first couple months, I'm sure, like, yeah, we get paid to party. They did 1,400 episodes of that motherfucker. <gasps> you know, by, by about 900, he's like, oh, my God. I got so many workout video ideas that I want to get to. <laughs> I need challenges, man. But here's something interesting about uh, the grind that, uh, like, you watch, like, you see old clips of, like, Soul Train or American Band Center or something. It's like a party. It's like, yeah, it was like a, a happening, like a communal event. But you you watch some, like, grind clips, and everyone's kind of, like, like disaffected and kind of in their own world and things like that. Here's what happened. Halfway through the run, this is absolutely true, like, MTV moved to the to that 1515 Broadway place where where they would tape it. And there was, like, very strict noise policies in that building. So they literally taped it with no music and dubbed it in. I swear to God, I'm not making it up. So, so kids would just be like, just everybody's doing their own thing, and they would dub it in. So um, that was, uh, oh, shit. That was, so I, I, was, I was, how great would it have been if, like, you know, like, chief, it isn't working. There's no chemistry. The kids are just doing this. And uh, they would have looked out the window there. 15 floors down and saw a little organ grinder. Says, Bring that guy up. Just grinded it. That would have been great. Anyway, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of the program. This next story was recorded at the Adler Planetarium as part of their wonderful Adler After Dark series in July. It's from Matt Young, star of Improvised Star Trek and Hello from the Magic Tavern and an amazing person. Uh, and I really, really think it is the saddest, most moving story our show has ever had. I absolutely cried during it, and it was hard to introduce the next piece. So uh, thank you for that, Matt. But no, sincerely, thank you for your honesty and your heartfelt, heartfelt reflections. Uh, here is a story about a dog. Kearney Calvin Halford, my maternal grandfather, was born on April 5th, 1916. 
He served in Korea. He had six children. He outlived three of them. On September 6, 1987, when I was almost 13 years old, he took his own life. Casey Jones was born early that same September. She was a boxer and the runt of the litter. She lived a full life, sleeping in the sun, tearing up Sears catalogs, and barking at the vacuum cleaner. I grew up in Decatur, Illinois, a town for which I never had much sentiment. It was around this time that my mother and father, who married when they were very young, were fighting a lot. One day in eighth grade social studies class, I decided I was going to ask them if I could go stay with Grandma and Grandpa Halford. I was unhappy. That same day, I remember seeing my mom in the car behind the bus on the way home from school. I remember sitting in the kitchen and learning about my grandfather's suicide. I remember going to my grandmother's house and playing with my cousins. I remember crying in her bathtub. A few weeks later, it was my 13th birthday. My parents were driving me out to someplace desolate. I was bored and didn't much care. We pulled into a driveway next to a shambles of a house in the middle of the country. I saw the dogs around their mother trying to nurse. I'm not really sure I knew the Broxer breed by name then, but my parents looked at me with this anticipation, having shown me that they've taken me here to get a dog, and I looked and I went, man, they are ugly. We stood outside and I met the dogs. My dad negotiated with the breeder. I could have my pick. One of them, brindle-colored, was smaller than the rest. I noticed she would get pushed out and away as the, as the bigger dogs fed from their mother's teats. I knew which dog I was taking home. Casey was immediately named after my grandfather, Kearney Calvin, KC, as he often went by. I insisted that her last name be Jones mostly because I'd heard of the poem, not because I liked it. I got annoyed with the vet for calling her Casey Young, as I would insist you can very easily see they were not related, and she she had her own last name. And I would dream of getting more dogs, Indiana Jones, Grace Jones. They would be the family that lived with my family. She was my dog, and I was her boy. And if you're not an only child like I am, this might not seem like that big of a deal, but the idea of being a boy and his dog, I mean, that had a magical quality that I felt my my life was sorely lacking. A true blue companion who would never let you down. I remember teaching her tricks. She could sit, lay down, speak, and if you went, bang, she would fall over dead. And then she'd immediately jump back up and expect a milk bone. I remember putting baby powder in her jowls to train her not to drool as much. I remember her sleeping by my legs late at night when I tried to stay up and catch Letterman. I played catch with her. I fought with her. I ran with her. I picked up her poop, and I fed her. It was all great, except the poop. Maybe a year or so after Casey came to live with us, things were still hard in my family. I struggled fitting in and finding my place at school. And after school on one occasion, I remember putting a plastic bag over my head, expecting to suffocate myself. Now, this was the most half-assed suicide attempt ever. I was in absolutely no danger whatsoever. But I remember being sad and mad and, I don't know, just um, upset uh, at everything. But Casey came into the kitchen where I was standing with a bag on my head. And she barked, and not a fun, playful bark, a concerned bark, an owner knows. It upset her to see me like that. I remember pulling the bag off and seeing her. She was mad, and she was ready to bark again. I let her know it was okay. It's okay. It's okay. I was never in any real danger, but she saved me nonetheless. Pretty good for a run. In 1998, college was behind me. Decatur, Illinois was far, far behind me. I'd been living in Chicago for about a year and a half. I was finding my sea legs as an artist and a human adult. My dad called me on a cool fall morning. Casey had died. She apparently seemed shaky that morning, 
not uncommon for an 11-year-old boxer, old white face I had dubbed her in college. But she walked around the house over and over looking for something. The something, we concluded, was me. Eventually, she went into my room, got up on the bed and passed away. Thank you for being there for me when nobody else was. Casey, I'm sorry I was not there for you. Our final story of the episode comes from one of my best friends. Uh, I mentioned at the top that our L.A. show was one of the two tent poles of my year. Uh, doing a show that included Ben Rathert was the other. It was such a thrill for me to have this fellow on our stage. And then to get to do a song with him, Jesus, it was amazing. Uh, when I think back on your story shows that I'll remember forever, this is absolutely in my top five, maybe top three, maybe number one. I, I don't know. I'm never going to forget this. Uh, incidentally, you'll hear another story from this night on next week's podcast. But for now, we're going to turn things over to Dr. Benjamin Rathert. Guys, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. I, I, I've listened to every episode of the podcast. I've traveled 300 miles to be here tonight, and I want to go on record saying I am the biggest fan of your stories. Oh, I want to make that clear. Every morning I wake up at 5 o'clock to do my notes, to putt around the garage, work in the wood shop, and I've got the headphones on, and I've got whatever I'm listening to, and your stories is always top of the list if it's there. So anyway, um, I've had the, I, you know, with this, I've, I've learned about some people, uh, more people I've only met in passing, uh, and I've learned a lot more about them. Uh, Andrew Bentley comes to mind. He's my oratory hero. <laughs> pass that out there. That man is amazing. So anyway. I've been torn as to what I should write about and, and what I should tell you about tonight. Um, I, I don't want to go over my time, but at the same time, I do want to tell you something worth telling you about. And it's kind of the story about how I came to be here, my, my life up to this point, summarized more or less. And guys, how I got here was Elton John. <laughs> of all the things that make me up and define me, I am perhaps most of all a country boy. Uh, in no particular order after that, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a nerd, I'm a music fanatic, I am a brewery enthusiast, uh, but uh, the country is a part of me, and I'm a part of the country. Please excuse my tropes. Let me tell you where I'm from. The towns of Ava and Campbell Hill are sister towns next to each other. It's in the southwestern corner of Illinois among rolling hills, cow pastures, creeks, and woodlands. The Mississippi River is about 15 minutes away. There were 83 people in my graduating class. Uh, we would go to church on Sundays. We'd spend early summers baling hay and late summers cutting brush and trying not to die from overheating. In the winter, we'd cut and split a lot of firewood, so much firewood. I did not have a summer job, job or after-school job other than being at my dad's beck and call for any of the millions of things that we would have to do on the farm. Fixing fence, it could be anything. We went deer hunting in the fall. We drove the dark back roads of the mystical hills that surrounded our small towns night after night, listening to the music that we had and not even knowing what the dreams of our future should be at that point. My taste in music comes directly from my mother. She would take me with her on her floral runs when she worked as a florist or on the 30-minute uh, trip to the grocery store. I was strapped in as a small child. Led Zeppelin and Tom Petty were there. Ario Speedwagon was there. There is no point in my life that I remember that I do not know the works of Supertramp. <laughs> I remember one night coming home from one of my sister's ball games, and I heard on the radio for the very first time Carnival 9, uh, you know, welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. And my head was just like, this is, this is great. You know, I'm, I'm little at this point. And my mom, who was singing along at the time, uh, my mom's always, she's always a little cooler than she thinks she is. She's, she's really humble in this, but anyway, taste of music, it's awesome. She pointed out, she said, you know, Ben, I've got this at home. What? So we went home that night in the pie safe over the false graph. She pulls out brain salad surgery, and, buddy, we listened to it on the turntable, and it was great. <laughs> My mother owns this music. My head explodes. I listened to all of those records in the years that follow. Goat's Head Soup by the Stones, Let It Be by the Beatles, Flat as a Pancake by Head East. Those are a few that I remember trying to wrap my junior high head around. Um, honestly, I listened to a lot of Bill Cosby comedy albums because she had those, too. But right around that time was when I discovered someone else among the shelves there, and that was Elton John. There was something about how he sang, how what he was singing about completely captured me. 
I bought his Greatest Hits Volume 2 as one of the first CDs I ever purchased because it had Levon on it. And let me tell you, as a, as a boy who feels awkward and lonely, that song, mm, it gets you deep. When that CD player was playing for the very first time, it was on my parents' computer, I heard Tiny Dancer for the first time. It was over. <laughs> I sang a lot growing up, as my dad will attest. One of the reasons I did and still enjoy going to church is it gives me a chance to sing with other people. But for me, growing up, I sang whenever and wherever I could. The lawnmower and the tractor were common venues. <laughs> uh, I remember more than once my dad telling me to stop singing like that because I couldn't be paying any attention at all to what I was doing. On his end, I wonder what it was like seeing his 14-year-old son singing Crocodile Rock as loud as he could while hauling hay bales on the tractor. Anyway, I don't care. Music sustained me. It got me through those long, hot days, the mowing the cemetery and everything in between. I made a lot of good friends when I went to U of I. The best ones were probably through my improv group, Spicy Clamato. It was a strange, and it was strange and affirming to be more open about myself on the stage, but frankly, most of the time, I was so reserved with my upbringing that I wasn't able to really put myself out there as much as I wanted to. Uh, that said, um, I remember one of the first times I talked to Eric after one of our shows, that Eric, um, he came to almost all of them as one of our biggest fans. Fans? <laughs> yeah! That's right. That's right. Sorry. There we go. Uh, and, and we would always get to talking about stuff we were interested in. My best friends at that point were probably Jeremy, A, uh, Eric, Craig, John. We would sit around wasting afternoons talking about Deep Space Nine and Final Fantasy and everything in between. And God, it's good to have friends that get you, you know? I, I hadn't really had that on such a level at that point. But anyway, back to Eric. It didn't take us too long to talk about music to, for us to both realize that we both got it on a level that not a lot of other people did, or at least, you know, we in our small minds, you know, were so intense about. And specifically, he liked Elton John. Oh, he liked Elton John. <laughs> Flash forward again, I've ticked off many Elton John albums off my uh, record. I've, I've got Made in England, uh, Big Picture, Mad Men Across the Water, especially Songs from the West Coast, and about ten others. Uh, Captain Fantastic and the Dirt Brown Cowboy has helped me through a terrible breakup. I've lost people. i found people. I'm working in a clinic on some random, random Tuesday afternoon in the summer. I get a call from Eric, and I hadn't heard from him in a couple of weeks. Uh, so he uh, reminds me that once I asked him to take me along if he should ever go see Ellen John in concert, he is. Now I am with Billy Joel at Wrigley Field. My head explodes. <laughs> That moment in the, and the ensuing concert touched me because while I'm sure that asking me along was something I would have asked Eric to do, I honestly don't remember asking him to do that. And he did. And I got to go with him. I went to undergrad in Champaign, med school in Rockford, residency in Peoria. My wife, is, Nikki, is from Springfield, and I'm from Carbondale. I like to tell people that I lived everywhere in Illinois except for Chicago, which doesn't really count because I spent a lot of time up here because some of my best friends live here. Um, my three years in residency in Peoria were filled with trials and tribulations that would probably make for several good stories on their own. Uh, it was exactly like Scrubs. <laughs> Except that, you know, the, the, the soundtrack was a little bit off every week, but anyway. Um, ser seriously, though, the long nights, the C-sections at 2 in the morning, learning there are people I'd be able to count on and people I would not be able to count on, filling my attending's office with live chickens, uh... Letting a, uh, letting a patient die after having their ninth and final code finally that was that was a long ordeal, um, and slowly figuring out what kind of a doctor I was going to be. It's all wrapped up there. My feelings about Peoria are all over the map, and I, I couldn't trade them. Um, while I was there, I finalized my contract to come back home and work as a rural doctor, a rural doctor as I had always wanted to be. Uh, when the final weeks and days were closing in on my last three years, my, my final time there, uh, me and all my friends were standing around the conference room after our very last noon conference, realizing that this was it. It was a Friday. We didn't have any more Mondays to come back to. It was just us. How do we say goodbye? You know, it, it comes out. You know, you get the hugs, you get, you get the tears and all that. And, and I, I said my, my last goodbyes, I grabbed my stuff, I got in the car, and I was ready to go home, the long three-hour drive back to Southern Illinois. I had my, my 164th mix CD, volume 164, and I popped it in, and the very first track was Honky Cat by Elton John. When I look back, boy, I must have been green, bopping in the country, fishing in a stream, looking for an answer and trying to find a sign. Till I saw your city lights, honey, I was blind. <laughs> 
and I just cried. <sighs> Years ago, I'm going to wrap this up, sorry. Uh, I bought uh, Elton John's second album, Tumbleweed Connection, and I listened to it while going to visit some people. It is an incredible album, guys, and if you don't yet believe me that Elton John's worth listening to, please listen to Tumbleweed Connection because it holds up. It's amazing. Well, I was driving across a bridge when the song Love Song came on, and I was suddenly transported. The song honestly sounds like you're falling asleep on the beach. It's got the waves in the background. It's got gentle lyrics on top of, like, plucked guitars, and I was transported. Suddenly, I was back listening to my mother's records and her copy of Tumbleweed Connection. I was nine years old again. And I was just stunned and amazed that while I did not remember the song, I had it here. Uh, anyway, I have a daughter on the way. My son is three. My wife, Nikki, is beautiful and sticks with me through everything that I do. Life is amazing. I will keep listening to you at 5 in the morning in the wood shop, and I look forward to it. Thank you so much, guys. Ryan. 
things out i think this is the most impressive performance the your stories band has ever turned in uh it may not sound like much but man you had to be there this song sounded like garbage before the show it is unbelievably complicated for such an airy pop song uh somehow even though there are some mistakes here when it came time to play it live we pulled it out so here's claire friedman jim snedeker dwight hassler and myself with a cover of wilson phillips hold on I hope you enjoyed this episode, everybody. Come back next week for more. Thank you all for listening. Hold on for one more day. I know this pain. I know this pain. Why do you lock yourself up in these chains? No one can change your life except for you. Things will go your way
Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you like your stories, try Tide Pencils. Tide Pencils is a show that explores the process of making art. Matt and Kevin sit down with a maker, cartoonist, painter, or designer to find out about their work and what inspires them to create. For more info, go to TidePencils.com. This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.